All right, folks, well, family, we're going to go ahead and get started now with this parasha of Mishpatim. And um, again, we're going to be getting through the next several years, and we're going to be covering more in depth of each and one of these uh, Mishpats and see really how this kind of relates to us today, because I think that's part of the problem that we have, and it's in really bringing um, Mishpats that are biblical from biblical time and kind of transferring that into today. But before we get into that, uh, Exodus 21.1 says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Okay. Uh, it opens up in Hebrew by saying, So it is the word in here that, that covers the, this parasha, or the title for this parasha is Mishpatim. And it is from that root word of the Hebrew word Shafat, which literally means to judge. Okay, now that is one word that we really don't like to hear. Uh, it, ha it carries a negative connotation when we say judge. But in reality, this word carries uh, several meanings. It's not just necessarily to judge in the sense of condemning somebody, but also sentencing or even to vindicate or punish, to govern also. So the understanding in Hebrew for this word is, yes, but one who's actually condemning, one who is passing judgment, but also one who's also discerning as well. So it has both meanings, and, and we see kind of evidence on that with the Greek word, that one of the Greek words that carries the English translation of judge, literally means to actually discern as well. So 1 Corinthians, for instance, 5.12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It says, this is Apostle Paul talking. It is not those inside the church whom you are to what? To judge. The idea is that the reason for the Mishpatims is not for you to go out there now and start saying you, 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 uh, if everybody in the world, but rather the Mishpatim is so that within the congregation we can keep accountability. Getting the idea because of the idea is that we're discerning between one another and the idea is to bring correction because remember that word also carries the understanding of governing as well. As a body, we cannot be governed in righteousness if we're just letting our brother dwell in sin. That's actually not right. That's not correct. It's going to bring the nation down. It's going to bring the assembly down. We need to be able to, if we see it, if the Lord is exposing it and we see in it as something that we need to carry along and, of course, do that in love and, and privately, not something that you're doing publicly as well. So it says here, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See, this is what Apostle Paul is talking about, that her purging carries the understanding and the connotation of instructing, essentially. The only way we're going to be able to purge evil from the, from the congregation if we're actually carrying along with mishpatim. So we're going to cover that in just a minute. John 7, 24 says, do not judge by what? Now, this is a big one, folks, because in light of what we just read in 1 Corinthians, Rashaul is saying that we are to judge those within the assembly. That's actually a misvote. It's not a suggestion. Okay? By the way, I want to point that out. It's not, well, maybe you should. No, it's you need to. It's an obligation. It's a duty. However, however, the Messiah here teaches us that when we do embark in this judging, and we, again, when we're talking about judging, we're not talking about condemning. Okay, we're not saying you're going to go to the pits of hell. Okay, we're saying, okay, brother, this is what I'm noticing of you. Let's get together. 
and reason and see, you know, where I'm seeing that you're going wrong in this area. However, when we embark on that, folks, <laughs> Yeshua reminds us here. He says, do not judge by what? Appearances. One of the biggest problems that we have in the Messianic movement is that we are judging by appearances. He says in here, but, and by the way, Messiah also advocated that we judge, just like Rashaul, we got two witnesses, but judge with what? Right judgment. The problem is that we don't know what right judgment is. We're judging by appearances, not right judgment. That's why this parashat today of Mishpatim is so important. Because if the Messiah is commanding us and Rav Shaul is actually uh, putting a stamp of approval as well, we got two witnesses in the, just in the New Testament, two witnesses, two valid ones, that are saying that we are to judge. But the idea is that when we judge, it has to be in righteousness. It can be, well, you know what? I don't like that. Or it doesn't look righteous according to my standards. So now I'm going to tear you down because you're not meeting my expectations. That in itself is a sin. That's judging by appearances. The judgment needs to be according to scripture. Not because we don't like something or we have a stronghold against a particular issue, whatever case may be. So with that said, folks, Exodus 21.1 says this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So first and foremost, uh, before we embark in this whole judging thing too, uh, the Midrash shares something that's very important and that I think we all need to kind of adapt this character trait, when, especially when talking about judging folks. Because this can get very, very, it can go south real fast. And that's why I, you know, I'm pleading here right now, folks. It's not for us to turn around now and start looking for the sin in our brother and our sisters. Don't worry about it. If it's that bad, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come to the surface. You don't have to go looking for it. We're not being called to look for the sin in our brothers. We've been called to look for the sin within ourselves. Okay? So don't go around being a policeman now looking for everybody's sin. It's the idea is the Father will reveal it. Don't worry. And if it's for you to do it and for you to say it, he will. Okay? But with that said, folks, one of the things that the Father wants to teach us that if now that we're embarking in this, in this uh, mishpatim, in judgment, he wants us to remind us of something. The Midrash Rabbah says this. The Midrash expounds in a juxtaposition of the passage to this passage, to the preceding one, which I always typically do. I connect, uh, if there's a connection, we go from the previous one to this one. So what is the previous one that they're talking about? What is written just prior to the subject of the ordinances? You know, we just started now, and these are the judgments that you have to present before them. What was the verse prior to that? The verse prior to that says, you shall ascend my altar on steps so that your nakedness will not be uncovered upon it. That's Exodus chapter 20, 23. Now, one may wonder and ask, what is the connection with going up the altar to passing on the judgment now to the people? Well, Hazard sees something very interesting in here. It says, and immediately following that, it is written, and these are the ordinances that you shall place before them. Now, what is the relevance of one subject to the other, he's he asking here. In its simple sense, the Midrash comparison between ascending the ramp of the altar and the ordinances that you are to place before them teaches the importance of judges being especially deliberate in judgment. That's the number one character trait that if we're going to be passing on judgment, even within ourselves or within our brothers and sisters, and for a judge, 
in general. Now, this teaches us something about within ourselves and how we need to do it, but it's also teaching because who is ultimately the judge? Hashem is the judge. Okay? Now, one may ask, and this is a question that we always have asked, why is God taking so long to pass judgment on the world? Well, first of all, the first aspect of Jewish thought is that a judge needs to be deliberate in judgment. Which is why we see why is it taking so long for God to pass judgment on the world. Let's continue on here. How is it that he connects um, passing, being deliberate in judgment with the walking up the ramp from the previous verse? Because of this. A Kohen, which is a priest, ascending to the top of the altar is to walk up a ramp slowly and deliberately assess. He may not spread his legs to ascend as with the stairs, even though his breeches would prevent actual exposure of any nakedness because he is on his way up to the top of the altar. Now, typically, that's what we learn, that the reason why they, you know, they want to walk up and they have to do it slowly is so that you don't expose the nakedness of the priest. But if you read also prior to that, or when we get to that subject in the book of Leviticus, the priests actually are covered underneath. So they got breaches underneath, so there's really no nakedness exposed. And though it is important for everyone to walk and act modestly, the holiness of the altar demands a level of modesty well beyond that which is normally required. He, he continues on. In a similar vein, as important as it is for everyone to avoid hasty decisions. This is what's so important. Because remember, the altar was the place of what? Judgment. Also. Because this is the place where you will go and you present the sacrifices and the offerings. So it's connected with judgment as well. So in a similar vein, as important as it is for everyone to avoid hasty decision, it is particularly crucial for a judge in here to make his decisions. Decisions that concern ordinances of the Torah with extra care and deliberation. So now the Torah is opening up first and foremost when he said these are the, 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 the ordinances that you have to set before him. The first thing that we're learning today in the parasha is that the ordinance, first of all, they have to be righteous. But the, number two, we cannot make decisions in haste. And I think that typically when we're going to judge any situation, the problem is that typically we get to the point that we do make hasty decisions. Either we make them in anger, you know, we make decisions that are involved emotions, essentially. And that's one of the things that the Father is trying to teach us is that the decisions that we make cannot be emotionally driven, but rather they need to be in righteous judgment and they need to be delivered. They need to be slow before we actually pass on that judgment. So now this brings us to this parsha now. Now with that understanding that the decision has to be slow, that it has to be righteous. We're going to open up with now the very first, very first one in the ordinance that presents us in the Torah. And it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go off free for nothing. Now, I want to just um, uh, make a, uh, open up with this statement in here. How do we take this mishpatim, this ordinance right here, and how do we apply that to today? Because part of the problem that a lot of people reject Torah is because of statements like this. See, I'm going to open up by saying that right here, this commandment has not been abolished. 
But what we're witnessing in here is an anachronism. The Bible is full of anachronism. And this is the issue that we're having. We're trying to take a commandment that it's not, it, hasn't been, it hasn't been void, but we're taking a commandment that is based on a time that's out of our time space in our culture. This is the problem that we're having within the Messianic movement. And outside of the Messianic movement, the same thing. The people say, well, you see, the Torah is done away with. Or better yet, the Torah is actually advocating slaves. Because again, the disconnect and we're not understanding the scriptures. Again, this is an anachronism. Now, I want to open up by saying, first and foremost, that this time frame in which the time that Israel lived, folks, there was no standard monetary unit like we have today. Uh, you didn't go and fill out an application and get jobs. Uh, most people live off the land. And if you didn't have land, and you didn't have animals and flocks, if you were not independently wealthy, then the idea of being a slave actually was very attractive. Okay. Now, when we talk about the word slave in here, we're not talking about what we modernly know as slaves today, but rather this was more of an employer employee relationship. Again, we're talking about an era that there was no 401ks, there was no retirement plans, there was no standard unit uh, or currency that they can work by. You basically have to live off the land. So today, we really don't have that. That's the problem. Today, most of us don't live off the land. Uh, the system that we're under right now, it doesn't gear towards that. We do have retirement plans. We do have a standard currency. What does this put this? The problem in here, or rather the understanding when we're talking about buying a Hebrew slave, is that we're going to see and remember that the Israelites were slaves prior to them coming out. And now the father, what he's doing, the gear or the, really the purpose of this commandment to start off with, it's for the protection of if we want to call it the employee. One thing that is revealing in this commandment is actually how ugly things were back then, when we really think about it. Because what he is actually requiring here is the very opposite of what they were doing. So when you're reading this, understand that the commandment is to look after, or look out for, rather, the person who is working for you. Okay, keep, kind of keep that in mind. That's number one. Has that commandment been done away with? No. In a sense, we can still apply this without calling it slaves. It's called employees. We look after them. We look out, we look out for them. We look for their protection. Um, and, and as we go through this, we're going to start seeing a lot of these things. Again, we're not advocating slavitude in here. But rather, again, this is understanding of working relationship. So look, ma'am lo es opens up, and I love the Ma'am Loes because it really expounds in depth with the understanding of each and one of these commandments. So we're going to understand this from a Jewish perspective today. In the very first commandment, how does this relate to our society today, and most importantly, our relationship with our Heavenly Father? Amen? So Ma'am Loes also opened up like this, saying, in ancient times, and this is historical, by the way, too, in ancient times, when a person stole something, because I bet you when we open up with this, we didn't understand what was happening uh, geographically before that. What was happening? What was the climate of that time? It says, when a person stole something and did not have the means to repay it, 
the courts will sell him as a slave. Basically, the very first commandment, and pretty much all of the commandments in the Torah, folks, it's not about putting somebody in jail, but rather restitution. And I guarantee you that that system works a lot better than the one we currently have. Because the one that we currently have is showing that it's actually not working. Okay, so let's look at this. The courts will sell him as a slave, and his purchase price, okay, would be used to repay the theft of the person that obviously he, he stole from. Now, the Torah is telling us what must be done when a slave is bought from the courts to make restitution for his theft. So this is the context setting in here. When it's talking about a slave, it is talking about somebody who was sold for a reason. Typically, it was because of theft. In very seldom locations, you will find that it was because either they had high debts also, and they couldn't pay for it. They will sell themselves and offer themselves as slaves, which is in turn service. Guess what, folks? Today you will be considered a slave if you go punch the clock from 9 to 5. Because you endeavor to that person and you work for that person. No different. Again, it's just terminology. It's the way that word comes across. So in here, specifically in Exodus, when it's talking about the slave who is to be sold, it's because this person actually stole something. He did something wrong in society and now he's been sold to the courts. Such a slave may only be kept for six years, according to Hashem. Now, if that's what the Torah is revealing in here is that the slave will work for six years, the opposite stands true. And that time when you were sold into slavery, you were sold into slavery forever. There was no coming out. You guys remember Egypt? We just went through the story and how they mistreated the, the, the Hebrews and everybody else who was under the yoke of Egypt. Hashem was showing the Israelites at that time, I don't want you to follow those kind of precepts. Okay. So what are we seeing right off the bat on this commandment? It's the love for the person, the looking out for the person, rather than, oh, the Bible is actually advocating slavery. Again, perspective, folks. Okay. So it says in here, as soon as the seventh year begins, it says in here, he must be freed. Okay. Now, this is very interesting what I'm going to read in here. He does not have to make restitution to his owner, no matter how much was paid for him. The Torah, therefore, speaks of a Hebrew slave, because it opens up by saying a Hebrew slave. He is called a slave so that he realized the purpose for which he was sold, number one. Now, I find that spiritually so prophetic because scripture alludes to us as being slaves, at least once upon a time, right? And it's the point is to remind us why we were where we were in the same way in here. Why he's called a slave to remind that person of what he had done wrong. So he is called a Hebrew to remind his owner that he is still a Jew. And it is forbidden to overwork him. The Torah stipulates that he goes out in the end without any payment. This indicates that if the slave, now listen to this, if the slave, this, this is what it means when it says that at the end he goes out without payment. What is the meaning of that? It says in here in the Mam Loes, the Torah stipulates that he goes out at the end without any payment. This indicates that if the slave was sick during the six years, 
the master has no right to make him pay for the medical treatment. Interesting. Now, can we see the mercy of our Lord God in here? Even though the person committed the theft, and he is guilty, and he is a slave, it's saying even with that said, if he was sick, in the end of the six years, the master cannot obligate him to pay for his medical. How amazing our God is. And this is something that for us, we need to understand, because if a brother does you wrong or steals from you, we need to extend this kind of mercy upon our brothers and sisters as well. Okay? So let's continue on in here. The master also has no claim, it says in here, for the expenses for supporting the slave when he was unable to work. The Torah says that when a slave is free, he must not repay his master anything at all. The general law commemorates both the act of creation, this is the purpose of the law also, the act of creation, and the exodus from Egypt as well. One reason that the Israelites, remember, were enslaved in Egypt was because they had stolen Joseph. You guys remember? Think about that. They had stolen Joseph and then, and then sold him to slavery. They became slaves. Can you see how this commandment, this Mishpatim, actually applied even back then and even for today as well, folks? Because even though you may not be technically labeled a slave, in the spirit you are a slave. You commit a crime, you're going to pay for the crime. But the Father's mercy will still be with you even as you're paying for the crime. That's what the, the Torah is revealing. So it says in here, because they have stolen Joseph and have sold him for a slave. The Israelites were sold, it says in here, by God to the Egyptians. Isn't that something? It was the Lord himself who sold the Israelites to Egypt because they had stolen Joseph and sold him into slavery. So just as a thief is sold as a slave because of his theft, but just as God eventually freed us from slavery in Egypt, so must we free the slave that is sold for theft as well. In other words, we extending the mercy upon which mercy was extended to us, folks. That's kind of like what this uh, first commandment or this first mishpatim is going with. Look, Exodus 21.3 says, if he comes in single, here's another, another mishpatim, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes out married, then his wife shall go out with him. So we're going to really understand what is the meaning of that as well. Because again, we don't live in that culture anymore. So this is kind of foreign completely. But the commandment, the, the heart behind the commandment is that you're looking out for your brother and sister. Even when he is paying for his sin or her sin. So here, Exodus 21.3. Let's look at this. Ma'am Loa says this. If the slave was not married when he was purchased, then he must leave alone. Okay? In other words, he goes without payment. In such a case, it is forbidden for his master to give him a Gentile slave as a wife. Now, we're going to see the purpose for this, and it's really, really amazing. Um, so it says in here, in such a case, it is forbidden for his master to give him a Gentile slave wife so that he will father slaves. Okay? However, if the slave was married when he was sold, then his wife shall go out with him. This indicates that as long as he is a slave, the master must also support the slave's wife and children also. Amazing. So if the slave got caught stealing and he happens to have a wife and children, the master is obligated to take 
the whole entire family under his care. And of course they have to serve him, but still they're under his care. Show me where mercy's not there, folks. Again, when you read this, the opposite stands true. What were they doing actively at that time? They were not practicing these things. Which means that if somebody got caught stealing and they will have to become a slave, now their family and their children will starve to death. Because how are they going to live if you're serving the master now? Who for thought? So, it says in here, since the master supported them the entire time for the six years, the Torah must specify that they also are to be released, and the master has no claim upon them. Conversely, if the slave's wife or children earn any money during the period of slavery, that money also belongs to the master. So anything that the family, the wife, the children would make, essentially will go to the master. Now, it's fair because the master is actually what? Supporting the entire family. Again, righteous judgment. Okay. The reason for this law is that God has mercy on the slave's wife and children, it says. Normally, a man supports his family, according to Scripture. Therefore, if a man is sold as a slave, his family can quite literally starve to death. The Torah, therefore, mandates that anything that the wife or children earn should belong to the man's master, which in turn obligates the master to support the slave's family completely. See how that works. Providing them with food, clothing, and shelter. That was the responsibility of the master as the slave was actually under his care. God thus has mercy on the slave's family. This is also mercy on the slave himself, man Lois says. Why? If he had to worry about his family starving to death, he would die of anguish as well. So we're starting to see in here where this is kind of going. We see that now if the man is caught stealing, now he becomes a slave. If he has a family, the family comes under the care. Whatever the family makes during the six years that they are paying for their crime belongs to the master. Okay? And the purpose for that is so that the master can support them as well. Exodus 21.4 says, if his master gives him a wife, now, here, now the rules are going to change a little bit. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be master, the, her masters, and he shall go out alone. So if he's coming alone and she bears him, uh, she gives him, uh, of course, a wife and bears him sons and daughters, then he has to go out alone. The children and the wife stay with the master. And we're going to see what this entails. Here again, Ma'am Lois says this. If a slave has a Jewish wife, now this is very interesting, it is permissible for his master to give him, in addition, a Gentile slave so that he will father children. Now that doesn't make sense because he has a wife. And we're going to see the purpose for this though. It is only when he does not have a Jewish wife that his master is forbidden to give him a Gentile slave or for propagation. One may wonder why the Torah permits such a thing at all. Since his slave is Jewish, why may his master pair him off with a Gentile slave woman? Furthermore, this rule seems to oppose logic, which it does. Logic indicates that if he does not have a Jewish wife, it would not be so bad to mate him with a Gentile slave. 
But if he re already has a Jewish wife, why permit him to have a second mate? May Amlois ask. But as we have seen, the Torah mandates that the master should support the wife and the children of his slave. We just read that before. The Torah therefore permits the master to pair him off with a Gentile slave woman. Since the master stands to gain more slaves through this union, he will agree to buy a married slave even though he has to support his family as well. Without this provision, no one would want to buy a married man then. That's what he's kind of looking for that. Because the master is not gaining anything out of it. You got to look at this from a business perspective. You see? If, you know, you got to think about this. If you, if you were caught stealing back then and now you, uh, you have a family, if, this, if the, the Torah didn't make a way for this, for him to have a gentle wife and to father, you know, of course, uh, the children are going to be slaves. If he didn't make this provision, then in the market, the courts, nobody will want to buy a slave who has a family because the master stands to gain not much of anything then. Think about it. So from, again, going into that time frame, folks, it makes perfect sense. It may not make perfect sense for us today, but living in that era makes perfect sense. In other words, it's allowing an opportunity for that person, even with a family, to have an incentive for masters to want to purchase them for work. So it says in here, if the courts were not able to sell him, the theft would never be repaid them, essentially. If the master gave the slave a Jewish woman as a wife, the master would have no benefit from it then. Why? Why would the master never have a benefit for him? It says in here, any children born from such a marriage would not be slaves, but will be freemen then at the end of the six years. You see? But if he gets him a Gentile wife, the children that will be fathered, they will be literally slaves. In other words, they don't have to go free at the end of the six years. You see, he gains from that more. So any children born for such marriage will not be slaves, but freemen just like any other Jew. However, if a slave is paired with a Gentile slave woman, then the children are slaves just like their mother as well. Look, we see examples of this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 68. Look, Deuteronomy 28, 68 says, And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, it says, a journey that I promise that you should never make again, he says. And there you shall offer yourself for sale to your enemies. This is going back to the laws that we're talking about. Offering yourself for sale to be to work. He says, there you offer yourself for, en for, your, for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be what? No buyer. This is what is connecting in here that the Ma'am Loes is talking about. That if he had a family, if he had a Jewish wife, then he can allow this to happen so that then the sale can take place. We see in Deuteronomy a picture of that in Deuteronomy chapter 20 68, that the people actually offer themselves for sale. He's saying in here that when you do, when that happens, there will be no buyer for you. Interesting. That's a whole midrash just on that alone. Ezra 9 9 says, For we are slaves, it says, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. This is where the first mishpatim of the Hebrew slave indicates. That even though there were slaves, the father had not forsaken them. He was looking after them. He established these parameters for the protection of the people, folks. So can we fulfill this today is the question. Absolutely. We can fulfill this today, folks.
If you own a company, you definitely can fulfill this today. If you have people working under you, you definitely can fulfill this today. If your children have done you wrong, you definitely can fulfill this today as well. Meaning, you still have to pay for the crime that you committed, but you also have to extend mercy and grace during the time that they are paying for their crime. That's really, in a nutshell, the commandment for us today. Now, back then, again, we're talking about, you know, when we're dealing with the commandments, folks, the commandments are meant to go from age to age. In other words, from culture to culture, you can still fulfill it. It's not going to look the same. We cannot go around saying in here today, well, you're going to be my slave now for six years, and that's it. That's an anachronism right there. That's heresy. We can't do that today. But we can still fulfill the heart behind the commandment, which is you're going to pay for your duties that you have done wrong, restitution. And on the top of that, I am going to look after you. I'm going to still care for you. And again, this is the things that we can extend that we have to be able to use wisdom. You know, Solomon used wisdom with the Mishpatims. You know what I mean? They're not always black and white. And this is the problem. That's this lack of understanding from the Mishpatims where a lot of people say, well, the Torah is no longer valid. So, so it says, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Again, the purpose for the slavery law is for the protection of the people, folks. Keep that in mind as we go on along with this. Because now I want to kind of put the, 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 the scenario in here. This, uh, this Hebrew slave has been caught, of course, stealing. Now he's under the subjugation of the master. Okay? Now this is, in a sense, not a good thing. This is kind of like, I want to put this now in a spiritual, in a spiritual understanding. We committed sin. We sinned against the Lord. And the Lord sold us to the master of this world. Think about that, because he is the master of this world. He is the, the, the God of this age. And what do we do? We serve him now. Not literally, but the fact that we have to get up every day, the fact that we're in this body, the fact that we still have to wrestle with sin, we still kind of still serving him. I want you to understand that, because as we come close in here, we're going to kind of switch this around. You're going to see how this plays out with here. Nehemiah 9.36. Behold, we are slaves this day. See, they even understood they were slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, it says. And its rich field, I mean, I'm sorry, its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. Verse 37 says that the yield that comes out of the land actually goes to the kings. This is alluding to the slave's wife who earns money, and the money goes to who? To the master. Getting this. This is very, very interesting. I know it takes a minute. You've got to really think about this. But this is Jewish thought, folks. You have to really think about it. But it's really this themes and connection in here that connect with our daily lives as well and the relationship between uh, the Lord our God and us. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So this conclusion in here today, we're going to deal and we're going to connect it now with this in here. And that is the piercing of the slave's ear with an awl. 
Because now that we have a little bit of understanding why the slave is there to begin with, what are the parameters that the Mighty One has created to protect that slave up to the point of the six years? What is the responsibility of the master? And what is the responsibility of the slave himself as well? Okay. Now the terms come up to the six years. And you know the father does everything in six and sevens, going into the seven. Very, very prophetic for our age that we're in. Because I believe that we're about to enter into the seventh millennium soon, in my opinion. We are in the age of the sixth, sixth millennium. We are pretty soon are going to be set free, folks. Now, this is important to understand because as the end of the age comes, of the sixth millennium, we're going to be confronted with a choice. And this is where the man Loess picks up in here. Let's see this. The piercing of the slave's ear. Exodus 21, 5 and 6 says this. But now that this comes together, the slave has a wife. The master gave him a wife. He has uh, children, okay? In some cases, that could have taken place too. If he didn't have a wife, in some cases, the slave will also give him a wife. If he already had a Jewish wife, then of course, you know, the, 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 the Gentile wife will have to stay. But if he didn't have a Gentile, if he didn't have a Jewish wife, and he came in by himself, and the slave gave him a wife and a children, at the end of the six years, those stay, he goes. So now we're going to pick up in here. What happens when the slave says, no, I don't want to leave because I love my children and my family that you have given me. Let's look at this. But if the, slaves, the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. And that word in there, we're going to see what it plays out. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with and all, and he shall be his slave forever, it says. Now, when I was reading, it was very, very interesting, you know, to make the connection as Mayan Loes is presenting this, and a lot of the uh, teachers in Hazal are presenting this in a way that I never really saw before, and I thought it was very interesting, and we have to share it, because we have to understand that this slave is indebted to the master because of a sin he committed. So the master that he's indebted to, essentially, is because, again, he's paying penalty. Now, the master gives him wife, the, wife, uh, the master gives him children, or rather the wife gives him children. Uh, the slave is at this point now where, hey, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to be free. And this is kind of like what we're picking up in here, what you know, the words of Ma'an Lois, for me, were very, very intriguing and very interesting. So let's read this in Hebrew. Then his master shall bring him to God, okay? It says, Behigishon Adonai El HaElohim. Okay, so it says in here, Vehigishon, that is from the Hebrew word garash, and that is to draw near, essentially. So it's drawing near, but the, the connotation of this word garash is drawing near, is drawing near for intimacy purposes. So it's more personal, rather. Not just kind of drawing near, but again, it has more of that connotation for uh, marital purposes, so to speak. So it says, Vehigishon Adonai El Elohim. Now, it's interesting that it, the translation for some of you may say God, for some of you said the courts. The reality is that Ma'am Loes says that what they did is that they brought him to the courts. 
because the word God, Elohim, is also translated as the judges. Interesting. So even back then, that term God, the term God, folks, is not a divine name. It's a title that is even applied to humans. The master will have to take him to the judges, the courts, so that the courts now can speak to this man because he's denying his freedom. So, in other words, Ma'am Lois, and I didn't include in here, but Ma'am Lois is teaching that even as the, as the slave is dedicating, saying that I want to stay, the master still needs to take him to the courts, and the courts need to kind of persuade him to go free, to make sure that he's not going crazy, so to speak. As a matter of fact, it says, Ma'am Lois says that the slave actually had to declare that twice, not just once, to make sure that he was sound mind. Because typically you don't want to stay a slave. Okay. So it says in here, Ed uh, Elohim, then it says, Behigoshon El Hadelet, which means you drawing him near to the door, or El Hamezuzah, or to the doorpost, the Mezuzah. That's where we have the, the scrolls in there, and each in the doors. And then it says, Veratsa Adonai Et Haazno. This word in here. You are to literally pierce, you are to engrave in the ear of the servant. Okay. Now, Hassan says that the ear wasn't the earlobe, but rather it was the, the actual part where there was bones, cartilage. Okay. So the idea is that they would take the slave, they would take him to the doorpost, and literally they would pin him against the mezuzah, and they would literally... And his, he was literally, his ear will be bound to the doorpost. It's almost kind of like uh, degrading. But there is a reason for this degradation because of the choices that he made. Let's look at this. It says in here, leolam. It says, and he will be a servant forever, leolam. But why is he going to be a servant to this master now forever? The key in here, it is he literally marked himself to be in servitude forever. So there was an intriguing mark or a visible mark that indicated that this, this slave now belonged to this servant forever. Look, the born of his ear says, the significant ceremony was intended as a mark of permanent servitude. Okay? and was calculated to impress the servant with the duty of hearing all his master's orders and obeying them punctually. That was the idea behind that, okay? Now, it's very interesting because as I was putting this together, I couldn't happen but to think of the Sefer Hazon, and that is the book of Revelation. Because, you know, a lot of times we have been taught that this has to do with Yeshua, and you know, marking the servant, and you know, you put the ears in the doorpost, there's the Torah. But again, I kind of I kind of want to present something a little bit different in here that I feel comes more in agreement, in my opinion, comes a little bit more in agreement in the context in which this is written. Because again, this is a slave who committed a crime who is now indebted to society. And now society, which is the master, is offering this servant wife and children, but not just wife and children, folks. The servant is also offering this, uh, I'm sorry, the master is offering the servant also taking care of him, meaning 
financially this man is taken care of. If he is actually freed, what happens today when you commit a crime and you go to jail? Society, is it hard to get a job? Nothing has changed under the sun. The servant is thinking, if I'm free, no one is going to want to hire me. I have him. He, he provides all my needs. I don't have to go and sell myself. He provides everything for me. And I have my children. And I have my wife, in which I love also. In other words, this master, and who he is endeavored with because of the crime that he committed, is now uh, uh, loving what this master is providing for him. But now it, the question still rises, why take him to the mezuzah and bore his ear? Mamlois presents something slightly a little bit different. But this part in here is what I saw during the, the whole teaching, is that it brought me back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, 16 through 18 says this. Also, it causes all, both small, great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast, the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, it says. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for its number of the man, its number of man, and its number six six six. According to this parasha, or this uh, sefer here in Chazon, it's saying that at that time, this this master of the world here, who's going to be controlling everything, is going to put a mark in you. Without that mark, you will not have a livelihood. Essentially, this is contrasting what I see contrasting with the slave, who is marked also. And now it has to serve the master forever. But in change, the master is providing all his financial needs as well. Look, why do I feel this way? It's because of this right here. His number is 666. That Greek word, 666, it is the, the Greek word stigma. And the word stigma literally means to stick. That is to prick. A mark incise, uh, in, incised or punched for recognition of ownership. What happens with the slave over here who says, I want to stay with this master who's providing all my needs? The master has to puncture him, just like it says in here, for a mark of distinction. And then essentially, the slave now is marked that he is actually owned by this person. So this, no, this number 666 means a recognition of ownership. Look, a scar of service. That's exactly what happened with the slave. He has a scar now of servitude. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Let's see what Hazan also has to say about this. Ma'am Loe says this. Look, the authority, Elohim, Mentioned in this verse denotes the courts. Before performing the piercing, the master must seek advice from the courts who sold him to, slave to, uh, to the slave to him and obtain their permission. So the, the master has to actually go to the courts, to the judge, to ask permission of the judge whether this slave can stay as a slave for him. Kind of reminds me of Job. Everything that Hasatan does, he has to go up to the courthouse and ask permission. <laughs> Getting this. Everything goes through the judge. Everything. Everything. You know, this is comforting in a way, in a ways, 
Because there's nothing that Hasatan can do to you without him taking it to the judge. This is what Mishpatim brings comfort to us, folks. We have a judge standing right now who is in his throne. And guess what? The master of this world still needs to go to him to ask permission. This is kind of like what Mayan Loess is sharing in here. That before he actually takes him as a slave forever, he needs to ask permission of the judge first. So let's continue on here. So he says in here, seek advice from the courts who sold them as a slave to him and obtain their permission. The courts will advise him that the slave be set free, since this is for his benefit. Now listen to this, what Mayan Lois is saying in here. Mayan Lois is saying that the courts need to advise the slave that this is for his benefit if he goes free. The very opposite. Go free. Even though you got a wife, even though you have children, even though this master is supporting you, and I know that you love your wife, she's probably very attractive, and you just love the children that you have too. The whole package deal, the courts need to show him it is not worth it. Why is it not worth it? Look what he says in here. The courts will advise him that the slave must be set free since this is for his benefit both physically and spiritually. Now, why is that for a benefit for the slave? That he be free spiritually and physically. As a free man, according to Mayan Loess, he will be his own man without a master over his head. Now, this is the part. And he will also be free to serve God. Keeping the Torah and the commandments. As a slave to others, it is difficult for him to keep the commandments and to worship at the right time. Interesting, isn't it? Because now that he's in debit to this man, he can't just go worship whenever he wants. Now, come on, guys, we understand this. You know, even when employers today, it's difficult to find a job because they don't want to give you Sabbaths off. They don't want to give you the feast off. It's hard to find decent work that will give you the benefits, the package, to become a CEO yet serve God. I mean, that's unheard of today. Well, guess why it was unheard of back then? Did Pharaoh allow the children of Israel to go and worship? I mean, what did we just read? Let us go worship for three days. We'll be back for our Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's like, uh-uh. I'm going to give you more work. I'm going to enslave you even more. This is the connotation that Ma'am Loess is presenting in here. This free man, has a, this slave right now, is, has the opportunity to be free, free so he can serve God. But he's choosing a woman, benefits, and children. Does that sound familiar for today in spiritual terms for us today? Let me present. This is why the book of Revelation is something that came from me, that I saw it. Because in the latter days, when that happens, we know that we're going to be coming at the end of the sixth millennium. That's the time to go for free. At that point, you got a choice. You mark yourself or you don't. This goes back to the laws of the slaves. It's interesting how this connects to the book of Revelation, in my opinion. I see it very, very clearly. Look, let's move on in here so I can share you more. Earlier, now this is interesting, it says earlier, the Torah referred to the slave as a Hebrew slave. When we opened up in verse 21, 2. While here, the, the, it refers to him merely as a slave. It no longer refers to him as a Hebrew slave. If the slave says because he reiterates twice that he wishes to remain a slave, he deserves to be given the what? 
the pejorative title of slave. He no longer deserves to be called a Hebrew slave, which is an appellation that denotes a degree of status. There's a difference. Now, since keeping Judaism as a free man means nothing to him, he is nothing more than an ordinary slave. It's amazing, folks. This is what we're learning just in the opening statement of the Torah portion with Mishpatins. How the Father is directing this and how and why. Why at the end there will be a such thing as a mark of the beast. Because we're coming at the end of the age of the sixth millennium. According to the Torah at that point, you have a choice whether you want to continue serving the master of this world or serve Hashem. Isn't that amazing? I'm glad to hear that. Oh, wow. That's good. Somebody got it. But you're getting this. Because the end of the age is coming soon, folks. And we're starting to see already the shadows of that. Our economy and the way things are going and just the way society is going. There is no room for God in people's lives anymore. We're too busy building a kingdom here. And or, better yet, we're forsaking the commandments of God. We're forsaking the, the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of a woman. See, a lot of this, everywhere. This is what this parasha is teaching us, that we need to be strong and not choosing that, but choose him above all. Be a free man. By the way, this also in, it shows that the slave had no faith. Because if he had faith, he would say, I will be a free man and serve God, and I know that God will make provisions for me. Instead of, no, I don't want to go out because, you know, nobody's going to hire me now. Again, we're choosing we're selling the covenant of our Heavenly Father for a piece of morsel. We being essentially an Esau who sold his birthright. Folks, this all comes back in turn. For what? For a piece of bread and morsel. The piercing is done against, now listen to this. The piercing is done against the door or doorpost. Now, why the door and the doorpost? Why? It says, the door and the doorpost are witnesses in Egypt when I pass over the lintel and the two doorposts, Exodus 12, 7. <coughs> Remember that the doorpost stands as a witness against the person, whether you are his or you're not. So, at that time, it says in here, I said, to me, the children of Israel are slaves. Leviticus chapter 25, 55. They are my slaves and not slaves of slaves. Meaning the master of this world that you're enslaving to, he himself is a slave. Look, I went to the trouble of freeing them from slavery. And now this person does not act that caused him to be a slave again. Doesn't act that causes him to be a slave again. Let him be mutilated in the presence of the door and the doorposts. The piercing ritual is done right next to the mezuzah on the door. Again, it is to remind the slave of his shortcomings, loving the Gentile slave woman who was been given to him as a wife and the children whom she bore to him. He is allowing his love for this woman and this prestige life to prevent him from living a full life as a Jew. Liam Lois says. Now, when we're talking about Jew, even Chazal at this point understood that it's talking about the faith of Judaism. Okay? Therefore, it says in here, because of that, 
He is punished in the presence of the mezuzah, which is inscribed. What is, what is, what is inscribed in the mezuzah? You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. His ears being pierced in there because he is choosing a woman. He is choosing the prestige of the world and the children over serving God. Think about this. His ears being pierced right there to remind him, you shall love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This slave is committing a great sin by allowing another love to take precedence over his love for God. He is showing greater love for his master in this world who is supporting him. And I will submit to you, this is a plague that's happening right now with everybody. You writing me a paycheck, you got my attention. And we forsake the Lord for silver Amen. that is going to perish. It's paper, guys. It's paper. It's nothing. It's going to perish. And we're willing to forsake the commandments of the Lord because of this. This is very powerful, folks. It's time to wake up. He is showing greater love for his master who is supporting him. He has a greater love for his Gentile slave wife and the slave children that she bore to him. How many times do we even witness that too? We forsake the Lord our God because either our husbands or our wives or our girlfriends, whoever, does not want to follow. And they, instead of us leading them into the path, they're leading us astray. The other way around. It says in here, for their sake, for their sake, he is willing to essentially to give up Judaism and remain a slave all his life, thus losing a large portion in his place in the world to come in the Olam Haba. This is very powerful. This whole thing with the slave and the piercing of the ear is a very powerful testimony. Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters, folks, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now this verse should make more sense in light of the loss of slavitude in the Mishpatim portion. You have a choice. Which one are you going to choose? You can't choose both. Because the slave didn't have an option to choose the Gentile wife and the children and still serve God. That option was never presented to him. He either had to choose being a free man and serve God or serve the master that he is under at that point. Matthew 4, 8 and 10. Our master was presented with the same question, the same situation. It says in here, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Why did Hasatan said that to Yeshua? Because Hasatan was the master of this world. The master of this world was telling him, you know what, I'll, I'll give you everything that you need. Just worship me, essentially. Let me bore your ear. Let me mark you. You'll be mine. And then I'll give you everything that you need. What was Yeshua's answer? Then Yeshua said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Are we saying those words today, folks? When the opportunities come, for us to either progress more and or, in any case, relationship. Are we choosing the Lord God over, above all, folks? This is not just limited to relationships, folks, because it says that the children also 
He had the wife, the Gentile wife, and the children. Notice the Gentile wife, by the way. It's a non-believer. <laughs> and he is being persuaded by this Gentile wife and her children now. But the same goes for the children. Are we willing to forsake the commandments of the Lord because of our children? Still the same, folks. There's no partiality in mishpatings, and we, that's the first thing that we need to understand. Whenever we're going to make righteous rulings, folks, that's why it says that we have to do it deliberately because we need to sit down and think that our judgment is not being partial. Seriously. Don't say you can't do this, but then in the other end of it, you're allowing it in this, in this aspect. You're being, you're being double-minded then. You need to sit down and really think, if I'm going to pass out a judgment for this, that means that this person who is here, who I love dearly, I'm going to have to do it with them also. Hashem said that when we follow these righteous rulings, essentially, we will be walking in blessings, folks. The righteous rulings are never easy to be fulfilled because the righteous ruling usually deals with emotions. You're dealing with people. You know, being a judge is not easy. A judge sometimes has to judge not in favor of someone that he loves. But that's a righteous judge. And God said, if you do this, I will bless you. I will multiply you. In that situation, I'm going to make fruit out of it. It's going to be good. Have faith. You know, part of being a, a, a righteous judge is that you have to have faith. You have to have emunah. If you don't have faith, you will never pass those righteous judgments because you're going to be afraid of the outcome. Let Hashem be afraid of the outcome. Let Hashem deal with that outcome. Not you. you. Your job is to pass the righteous judgment at the end of the day. That's why he said in here, only him will we serve. Only him will be the one. And we're going to end with Romans chapter 6, 16 to 22 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will no longer have dominion over you because you have chosen not to have your ears bore at the mezuzah. You have chosen to be a free man and serve God. You have served your time that God has sold you into the master of this world. And now he's calling you out. Don't be like the foolish slave who says, I'm going to stay with my, master, with my wife and my children and forsake the Lord. What then? Are we, to, are we to sin then because we are not under the law but under grace? What does Apostle Paul says? By no means, he says. That's not the answer. It's not to walk a lawless life. But what does he say here? Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? This is the reason why the laws of slavery is very important to understand because then you can put Apostle Paul's letter in the proper context now understanding this. Either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, that leads to life, or obedience that leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, just like the slave here. He was a slave to the master because of the crime that he committed. He was a slave, you can say, spiritually, he was a slave to sin. But the Father does not desire for you to stay there. There's a time of release, folks. Look, but thanks to be God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from that heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, meaning you accepted that, you have become slaves of righteousness. That's why he says 
in the mezuzah is that the children of Israel are to be slaves of him, not slaves of slaves. I am speaking in human terms, he says, because the people don't have spiritual eyes a lot of times to see these things. Because of your natural limitations, he says. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Without Torah. You presented your life. You dedicated your life to breaking God's commandment. It was a joy. You serve yourself. You know, a lot of people say, you know what, Richard, since I came to the Torah, I don't have the peace that I used to. That's because once upon a time, your flesh and your, and your spirit came in agreement. Your spirit and your flesh were in agreement to do lawlessness. Now, your spirit and your flesh are actually divided. That's why you wrestle now. Back then, you didn't wrestle. Oh, yeah, more lawlessness. Yeah, feels good. Now, it's like, oh, no, but ah, I want to. This is what Paul says. In the spirit, I will what I want to do, but in my flesh, I don't. It's a wrestle every single day. You're wrestling with the flesh. So now present your members as slaves to what? Righteousness. And what is the product of righteousness? It leads to sanctification, folks. What is sanctification? Holiness. What is holiness? Obedience to the Torah produces holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, again, just like the slave, you were free in regards to righteousness. Just like the slave, according to Ma'am Loes, the slave who was enslaved to this master, he did not have an opportunity to serve God because he was too busy serving the master of the world, paying for his sin, paying for the offense that he made. You were free in regards to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you were now ashamed, it says? None. For the end of these things is what? Death. And we're going to end with this. But now that you have been set free from sin, meaning you opt out of the mezuzah, the, ear, the piercing of your ear, you are now being set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is what? Eternal life, folks. This is very, I want you to really meditate in this teaching today, because I believe that a lot of foreshadowing is given for the time yet to come. We're coming into hard times in our economy, folks, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's going to get really, really bad, and it's going to get to the point where Unfortunately, there's going to be a, uh, a group of people, according to the book of the Revelation, that they're going to be led astray. And I believe they're going to be led astray because they're going to be like the slaves in here who loves what the master's providing for them, who loves the luxury, who loves the, the, the flesh, wife, children, everything, the whole package. We're going to want that. And the problem is that with that comes a mark. That's what the Torah demands. If you want to be a slave to the world, you see, the thing is that the world is very good at desensitizing you right now. And you're being desensitized right now whether you realize it or not. And I'm seeing that. Even among believers, I'm seeing that. You know, we want to think like the world and we want approval of the world. That's where your shortcomings begin. If you're trying to get approval from the world, God is going to call you bluff with that. And the world is going gonna, is gonna to say, you know what? You are one of us. You know, those people over there, they don't make no sense. They're going to sugar bit. You don't need to be with them. Come in here. We got the right way, the right way to doing things. And that's where that mark is going to come in, folks. When that mark comes in, remember the parashah mishpatim. 
the slave that bore his ear to serve the master. Do not do that. Do not forsake the Lord your God and his covenant for the sake of a piece of bread. Amen? All right. Yeah. I just hope it all comes together like it's supposed to. Um, okay, so from a, a couple of weeks ago, I actually I've had the pleasure of um, talking a little bit, giving you a little bit of history about Jeremiah. So I want to take a little bit of what I talked about. Um, his, uh, his active ministry was from the 13th year of Josiah in um, 626 B.C. to the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the first temple in 587 B.C. Um, uh, something was out of order there. Anyway, this period of nearly 40 years spanned the reigns of five, five of the kings of Judah, Josiah, Jeho, uh, Jeho, uh, Jehoaz, uh, Jehoiakim, and uh, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Zedekiah being the last... Amazingly enough, Josiah had actually done what he could to return the people to the, to, to the Torah of Hashem. He, was, uh, he, he had reinstituted all of the feasts. He was following the, the, the Torah of Hashem. But then, in his passing, the kings that came after him, his sons, began to transgress again. And so, um, so now we are in the, the kingdom of the reign of Zedekiah, and uh, there is uh, the, the Babylonian army coming to besiege Jerusalem and all of its cities. So in our story, we are at the beginning of our chapter, which we didn't really cover. It's, um, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon, with all the kings under him, had besieged Jerusalem and all of its cities. So all of the cities in the, in the, the nation of Judah were being besieged by, uh, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah now brings the word, or was bringing the word of uh, Hashem to Zedekiah, condemning the people for keeping the Jewish slaves against his Torah and predicting the conquering of Jerusalem. And so we read that, oh, sorry, in order to receive God's forgiveness, the Jewish elite then release their slaves. Okay. So we read that in the opening portion of our half Torah today. The word which came to Jeremiah from uh, Hashem after sovereign Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim release to them, that everyone was to set free his male and female slave, the Hebrew man and the Hebrew woman, no one was to keep a Jew, his brother, enslaved. And when all the heads and all the people who had come into the covenant heard that each one was to set free his male and female slaves and not keep them enslaved any longer, they obeyed and released them. Blessed be his name. They heard the word and they obeyed. There's only one reason that they obeyed, though, and that's the problem. When Nebuchadnezzar lifts his siege against the city, the elite cancel their agreement and take back their slaves. Because the only reason that they were repenting was so that God would remove the siege. And when he did, they took back their slaves. And so we read that in Jeremiah 34, 11. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. And that takes us back to Exodus, chapter 21, verse 2, which we did cover today. What Richard covered quite in depth. When you buy a Hebrew servant, as he will serve you six years, and in the seventh year he goes out free for naught. Uh, I, I don't think he read the whole verse. I don't think he read the verse in, in Hebrew. And it's Kitigne Eved Ivri Shesh Shanim Yaavod Uvish Sheveit Yetze Chafshi Kinam. We're going to take a look at one word particular, and we're not going to look at the word servant. Believe it or not. Because the word Eved is the word servant. When you take a servant, upon yourself when you take that slave. But we're actually going to take a look at the word tikne, which is to buy. It is from the word kana. It means to get, to acquire, buy, possess, purchase, or redeem. 
And as Richard said today in the Hebrew culture, when they were taking a slave, a servant, onto them, they were redeeming the slave because they were buying the slave. They were paying the penalty that that slave, or that, specifically that thief, had committed the crime. And so they were paying the, the retribution, right? The, the restitution, excuse me. So um, we also see that same word used in Exodus 15, 16. It says, fear and dread fell on them. By the greatness of your arm, they are as silent as a stone until your people pass over, O Hashem, until the people whom you have bought pass over. Hashem bought them back. He took them out of the land of Israel, but he did so by buying them. Okay? So I went to Webster's 1828 um, to see what the word redeem said there. It says, to purchase back, to ransom, to liberate or rescue from captivity or bondage. And that's exactly what we saw with the children of Israel in Egypt. They were in captivity and they were in bondage. They were obligated. They were a, they, a liability to suffer or to be forfeited by paying an equivalent. To repurchase what has been sold, to regain possession of a thing alienated by repaying the value of it to the possessor. Now, Richard talked briefly about us being sold into sin, right? We didn't sell ourselves. We all know that there was one who sold us into the sin, and that was the first sin that was ever committed, and I'm going to get to that here in just a second. To rescue, to recover, to deliver from, to free by making atonement, to pay the penalty of, which is what we kind of see in, in redeeming of the servant, the, the, of the thief, and then to save. Okay, So to redeem. The children of Israel were redeemed from Egypt in order to sanctify and cleanse them, to give them new instructions, which is the Torah, and in order to make them a holy nation, his treasured people above all nations. The Jewish people were to redeem their Jewish brothers in order to bring restoration and repentance, to teach them, right, to reteach them, to return them to the Torah of Hashem, because they had apparently transgressed, because they'd gotten into such arrears with a debtor that they're now having to sell, they're now in trouble with the court, right? To be in trouble with the court, we've got ourselves in pretty, pretty much of a mess. But once we return them to the Torah of Hashem, we also will return them, um, this in turn restores them life, okay? Because when we return them to Torah, the Torah is life, right? The commandments that therein bring life to those who, who obey, and obey in, in, uh, in love. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, for by favor you have been saved through belief, not that of yourselves. It is the free gift of Elohim. In Romans 6.23, which Richard almost touched on today, for the wages of sin is death, but the favorable gift of Elohim is everlasting life in the sight of Yeshua, our master. So here we see some saving grace, right? So some indications that we were saved, that we've been redeemed, okay? Romans 7.14 says, we know that the Torah is spiritual, but I'm fleshly sold under sin. Well, what, what, is, what does Paul mean by sold under sin? Well, that word in the Greek is the word hupo. It is by, under, or about. Properly under, but often meaning uh, under authority of someone working directly as a subordinate. Oh, well, who's the subordinate that we've been sold under? Hasatan, right? He's the subordinate of, of Hashem because he still has to do, he can only do what he does because Hashem allows him to do it. He has, still has to get permission. It's also of placing under or subjecting. So Adam's sin brought sin and death to all of us, right? So let's take a look at Romans 5, 21, uh, 12 through 21. It says, For this reason, even as though one man, as through one man sin did enter into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Well, we're born into the sin. There's nothing we can do about it. 
As soon as sin entered the world, the world fell, and now we are part of that sinful world. The world has completely changed. For until the Torah, sin was in the world, but sin is not reckoned when there is no Torah. Because Torah defines what sin is, right? So we don't necessarily know what sin is until we understand Torah. Well, that kind of begs the question, well, if you don't understand Torah, how can you be saved and redeemed and made sa and sanctified in order to walk in his ways to be a holy nation if you don't have Torah? Right. And isn't that the failure of the churches that we came out of? Because they're not teaching us how to truly be holy. Death reigned from Adam until Moshe, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And of course, that him is capitalized there because we understand that that would be the Messiah, Yeshua himself. Oh, excuse me. What did I do? Well, let's go back. Hold on. Hold on. We got it. Yeah, I know, right? We're going to sing the Shema again. Hang on. I hit the up button. Yeah. All right. Now we get, gotta get to the right spot. Okay. The favorable gift is not like the trespass. For if by one, the, the one man's trespass, many died, much more the favor of Elohim and the gift in favor of the one man, Yeshua Messiah, overflowed to many. The favorable gift is not as by one having sinned. In other words, the one who brings the gift is not by someone like us who's been born into sin. He was born without it. The favorable gift is not as, one, as by one having sinned. For indeed, the judgment was of one to condemnation. But the favorable gift is of many trespasses unto righteousness. For if by the trespass of the one, death did reign through the one, much more... Those who receive the overflowing favor and the gift of the righteous shall reign in life through the one, Yeshua Messiah. So then as one trespass, there resulted condemnation to all men. And didn't, aren't we condemned because, of the, condemn, because of, of the trespass of Adam? That one sin brought death to everything. Right? Because the wages of sin is death. That one death, excuse me, that one sin brought death to absolutely everything in the world death and decay. And we can witness it. You look outside. You see the, you, you see the decay of everything that has, that has life to it. it, it we, we, we look around the room and we see that we've all aged, right? Our kids grow. They start small and they grow up. And then they age. And, we, and, we, and, and the decay of mankind. So then, as one, through one trespass there resulted condemnation to all men, so also through one righteous act there resulted righteous declaring of life to all men. So Yeshua was able to allow us to declare life, to, to bring life back into us, right? Because ultimately, when he died and we died with him through his death, then we will also have the resurrection of life, right? For though... The disobedience, excuse me, for as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so also through the, and I'm going to add the word, absolute obedience of the one many shall be made righteous, because he was absolutely obedient to the Father. He didn't do anything on his own. We need to remember that he didn't come to do his own will, he came only to do that of his Father. 
And Torah came in besides so that the trespass was, would increase. But where sin increased, favor increased still more, so that as sin did reign in death, even so favor might reign through righteousness to everlasting life through Yeshua Messiah, our Master. So a little bit of, of it's kind of deep, but a little bit of understanding of the salvation, the saving work of Messiah. Because Adam brought sin into the world, Messiah needed to come, come into the world walking as a righteous individual in order to take that out. Okay, to bring to bring life back. Titus 2, 11 through 14, witnesses. It says, For the saving gift of Elohim has appeared to all men, that being Yeshua Messiah, instructing us to renounce wickedness. So we can't keep walking in our wickedness? We need to renounce the wickedness. Instructing us to renounce this wickedness and, and the worldly lusts and to live sensibly, righteously, and reverently in the present age. Not, in the, not just in the age to come. So how do, you, how do you renounce wickedness and worldly lust and live sensibly, righteously, and reverently in the present age without Torah? Because Torah is what defines the sin that we need to get rid of, and it tells us how to walk in the obedience. Looking for the blessed expectation and esteemed, esteemed appearance of the great Elohim and our, and our Savior, Yeshua Messiah, who gave himself for us to redeem us. And he redeemed us from all lawlessness to cleanse for himself a people his own possession, ardent for good works. But are we not ardent for good works? Don't we desire the good works of all people? When we are out in the world doing dealings with the worldly people, don't we wish that they also would deal righteously with us as we deal righteously with them? From all lawlessness. All lawlessness. That means we can't keep walking in the lawlessness that we once walked in. And what is lawlessness? It is sin. It is iniquity. It is the transgression of the Jewish law. So, if we're transgressing the Jewish law, then the opposite of that is obedience to the Jewish law, which means Torah. First Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, therefore esteem Elohim in your body and in your spirit, which are of Elohim. Well, we were bought with a price because we were servants to this world and to the master of this world. And he came and redeemed us. He paid the penalty so that we no longer have to be slaves to the sin and to the unrighteousness and the wickedness. So now we are his, his servants instead. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says, You were bought with a price and do not become slaves of men. In other words, don't turn, around, turn back around and, and resell yourself. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to the, the old man that you were, the old individual, the sinful nature. There are consequences to our actions especially when we're disobedient. There were consequences in the actions of the people who took back their slaves in our, in our half-Torah portion today. Jeremiah 34, verses 17 and 20 say, Therefore, thus said Hashem, you have, not, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release. Well, they did, but they went back on it. So they then disobeyed once again. Each one to his brother and each one to his neighbor. See, I am proclaiming release to you, declares Hashem, but to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the scarcity of food. And I shall make you a horror to all nations of the earth. And I shall give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and their corpses shall be for food to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. So don't think that if you come into his covenant and you agree to do the things that he's asked you to do, thereby entering into covenant with him, that when you transgress the covenant, it's just going to be smooth sailing and he's not going to require some consequences. He may forgive you, but there will be consequences to your actions. 
Just as we have children who disobey us, we don't stop loving the children, we don't stop forgiving the children, but there are consequences to their actions when they're disobedient. The good news is that there's always a positive note. In Orthodox Judaism, these two verses are the end of the half Torah portion because they're a reminder that no matter what, he's always going to keep a remnant. The land will always be theirs, though they may not be in it. He will return them to it. And so we conclude with, thus said Hashem, if my covenant is not with day and night, and it is, if I have not appointed the laws of the heavens and earth, which he has, then I would also reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant. But he doesn't. So that I should not take of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he will. For I shall turn back their captivity and have compassion on them, because he loves them. He provides his grace and his mercy throughout the Tanakh and the New Testament. Throughout. It doesn't just start, because Yeshua reveals himself in the New Testament. He loves his people and he will always hold on to a remnant. This covenant is a good thing to be in. It is an absolute to be in if you want the everlasting life. But he's good to those who enter into covenant with him. All right, Baruch Hashem. So today we're going to cover Hebrews chapter 9, 15 through 22. And uh, the Torah connection for this, although it's not directly related with the loss of the Mishpatim for slave, there is a slight connection in in the redemption of Israel in the new covenant with that of the slave. So we're going to see what specifically we're looking at. So what is the Torah connection, though, that we're going to be discussing for this New Testament scripture here today? It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 8. We didn't cover this today, but we'll talk elaborate a little bit about it now concerning this Idrash. It says in Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 8, says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, but the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, it says. Interesting enough, they all answered with one voice, saying what? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I want you to focus on that right there. Okay? All that the Lord has said, we will do. Now, it doesn't end there. Because words by itself have no power, no meaning. What really rectified this in here is, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Right? He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peat offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in his basins and half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. Then he took the Book of the Covenant. Which book you think that was? The Torah. 
He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And to add to that, we will be obedient. Not just everything that we heard we will do to really reconfirm what they were saying. We will also obey everything that we have heard. I mean, there's really no escaping that one. Like, they really cover all bases there. There's like no loopholes to get out of it. So, and Moses, after hearing that, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, it says, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It says that Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Which blood do you think that was? Blood of the altar? Which is, it's, yeah, spiritually speaking, the blood of the lamb. But what do you do with blood also? You seal the covenant. A covenant was sealed that day on Mount Sinai. Now, we must beg the question here today. Why did Hashem allow that? If that covenant that they made and they said, we will do everything that we heard and we will be obedient to it. Why would the Lord God, who is merciful and compassionate, allow them to make that covenant? As a matter of fact, there's a Torah actually against that. It says that if the father hears a child making a covenant, he can nullify the covenant. I mean, you guys knew that, right? We'll cover that later. So why is it that Hashem didn't intervene then at that point? If they were making a covenant, he could have nullified the covenant right then and there. But it says that no, uh, the Lord didn't intervene. Which means that whatever covenant they made at that very point, the Lord saw that it was fit and that it was good for Israel, essentially. So we're going to pick up from here because this is where they make the covenant and they literally the blood was thrown upon them. And not just upon them, it says that he also threw the blood upon the tablets, upon the books, the sefer. He threw the blood upon the book of the covenant. Binding essentially the book of the covenant with the people. This is very, very interesting, folks. So, what happens? Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. Now we pick up in here. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer Sanctify for what? The purification of the flesh, it says. Notice that the writer of Hebrews, which by the way, very, very well scholar, whoever was the author, a very well-known scholar and definitely New Temple Service. Because the Torah itself teaches us that the blood of bulls and calves and all these things, where they, were, they serve a means of literally not just to foreshadow the Messiah, but they serve for a means of that purpose, and that is to purify the flesh. Just kind of like baptism works the same way. We still baptize today. Yet baptism is a very, very old, old ritual, folks. It actually predates temple service. I'll tell you the truth if you want to get technical. But we baptize today, why? Because it's symbolic of the cleansing, isn't it? It's symbolic of what? Purification. 
We don't have a problem with baptism. It's interesting, but we have a problem with sacrifices. But they all kind of work together. You can't have sacrifices without baptism. You have, to, you have to purify. Even after the sacrifice, you have to go through the baptism. You have to go through the mikvah. So it says in here that all these things essentially were for the purification of flesh. So now in here, the author is going to uh, juxtapoints in here, so to speak, the works of the Messiah. How much more will the blood of Messiah, okay, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify what? Our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, the connection in here is the word serve the living God. But before we get into that, we need to understand that it says that the blood of Mashiach essentially serves to purify our conscience. Because what happened? We just read that in Exodus chapter 24, they said everything that the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient. And there was a rectifying of the covenant there by blood upon the people and upon the book of the law. And guess what? They broke it. They broke it that same day, as a matter of fact. They have to wait that long. So, it says in here that the blood of Mashiach, because remember, the blood was applied back then. There was blood upon the book, and there was blood upon the people. That is traditionally known also as trying to earn salvation through the flesh. See, the blood of the animals didn't do much. Only this purified the flesh, but it didn't move the spirit. This is what the difference of Mashiach, the blood of Mashiach and that of goats and bulls. It's not that the ones of the goats and bulls are not relevant or they're not important, but rather they serve different purposes. One is to purify the flesh while the other one purifies your inside, your spirit. So let's look at this. The blood of Mashiach purify your conscience. What is that word in Greek? It is sunedo. And it literally means to see completely. Look. Respectively meaning to understand or become aware. The blood of Mashiach was supposed to remove the veil, if you want to call it, so that you can be aware. But it doesn't say what. I'm just putting the word there conscious. That's it. What is it that we're being aware of? What is it that we now See completely that we didn't see before. See, this is the purpose because we have to understand the function of Mashiach. Folks, if we don't understand the function of Mashiach, we're going to go continue saying that lawlessness is the way to go, and at the end of the day, we don't, we can't do it. The purpose of the goal and the uh, the blood of the Mashiach is so that you can understand, you can see. Look. Deuteronomy 36 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may what? Live. The connection of this, go back, the connection with this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, is saying that he purified your conscience, meaning that now you can completely see. The blood allow you to see now and understand the things that are written in the Tanakh. 
that you never understood before. Now you have eyes to see, folks, where before you didn't. Look, Proverbs 20.12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. He has made the eyes that can see, and he's also made the ears that you may hear. In other words, it's available for everybody, but it's rather we want to accept it or not. A lot of times it's not that the Lord is not speaking. It's just that we're not wanting to do it. It's not that we're not even hearing. We hear, but we don't shema. It's not that we don't want to see, but we see, but we choose to ignore. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and the ears heavy and blind their eyes. This is what happened in here when he says that, why is it that the Jewish people cannot see Messiah? It's because he himself did it, folks. But why did he do it? Because they already had a stubborn heart to begin with. So just like he did with Pharaoh, he used that for a purpose. You don't want to listen to me? Then I'm just going to blind you completely. And in doing that, the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 that I gave to my servant Abraham will be fulfilled. It's amazing how the Father works. Lest they see, now it says in here, make the hearts of these people dull and the ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. He says, lest they see and hear. Because what happened if they would have seen and hear? Which, by the way, there's a reason why he blinded them. He blinded them because they would have seen it. He blinded them because they would have heard it. And if that would have happened, guess what? Gentiles would have never came into the covenant. Then we would have really been in trouble. So blessed be his name for their falling away. And understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. This is the, uh, the aspect of what we read in the book of John also that quotes this verse right here as to why they deny the Lord. Jeremiah 5.21 Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not. Remember, what is the, the goal in Hebrews 9.13? He says that he purified our conscience. Now we can see. We can understand. It says in here, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea and a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Through the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Through they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, it says. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. That's talking about the Moedines, by the way. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. The idea in here, what he says, again, establishing is that the, uh, the, the purpose of the Mashiach is to remove the veil, and that in translation is to remove the stubbornness the rebellious heart that we once had, folks. Now, if we contrast that 
what, what we've been learning about Mashiach today in your ordinary Protestant movement, how does that testify to Hebrews chapter 9.13? It doesn't. Because we're saying essentially we can continue the rebellion. And it's okay. Because the Lord has mercy on us, either regardless. It is teaching you that you cannot fulfill the law. Essentially, it's making you already defeated. It's not the purpose of the Mashiach, folks. The Mashiach came to equip you to be a warrior so that you can overcome. See, we have accepted this defeat that is unscriptural. Reality is, you have been equipped to be a warrior. Use it, folks. Don't use the blood as an excuse for defeat. Use the blood as an excuse to overcome. That's the idea. Matthew 13, 16 through 17 says, But blessed are your eyes. Remember, what is conscience? To see. Blessed are your eyes, it says, for they what? They see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. How amazing that is. And did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and then not hear it, essentially. We have been blessed, folks, that we actually have the Besorah, the gospel, at our disposal, that we can open up and we can read it. These are things that we take for granted every day. And according to Yeshua's own words, the ancient prophets long for this. Can you imagine? The prophets long for what you're reading today. And yet, I believe that today we take that for granted, completely. We don't appreciate the, the, the fulfillment of that. So moving on in here, Hebrews 9.15. Therefore he is, now I love this, because it opens up by saying what? Therefore, meaning that the result of, right? The result of what? The sprinkling of the blood to purify the flesh, to purify your conscience now. So, so that now you may what? Now you can see, you can hear. You can walk. Blessed are you, for you now you can see. He said, therefore, because of this, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Okay? So that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Now, we just read the first covenant. Exodus chapter 24, it's rectified there what happened in Mount Sinai where they re received the ten words. That was just them hearing, but here in this parasha, it was actually rectified by blood. That was sealed. That was the first covenant. Now, what did the first covenant entail? Well, this is important, folks, because we're dealing with the loss of slavery too also. It's interesting that in this parasha, we, we talked about mishpatins. And then it talks about them going to the mountain to hear God and to rectify a covenant. So there's a connection between the, the one who is free to go serve God and the rectification of the covenant in Mount Sinai. So it says in here, because of that, because your conscience is clear and you are able to see through the blood of the Messiah, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now I look up this word mediator, it is mesites in Greek. Look, it means a go-between, essentially. That is, 
by implication a reconciler. But the reality of this word in Greek, the, the weight that it carries, is something that goes in between. That's why it's called a mediator. You're mediating. What does a mediator do? Sits in the middle and mediates between two parties, so to speak, right? But there's something more profound and prophetic about this because, here, let's go back real quick. It says in here that he is the mediator of the new covenant. So he is the one who essentially goes in between for the covenant to be established. Now, where do we read this? Genesis chapter 15, 17 through 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is the covenant that he made with Abraham when he said that to you I give this land and to your descendants. Abraham fell asleep, and now this torch, this fire, comes down, and it passes between the actual animals, or the, the pieces of animals that actually Abraham cut for the, for the covenant. Abraham was supposed to walk in between those pieces, by the way. Abraham never had a chance to do so. He, he fell asleep. Who went through those which is the smoking fire or the flame that went in between those pieces, folks? The fire. As a matter of fact, you, the, the, the sages say that the Messiah is also known as the Esh, the fire. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. Do you understand that when he is saying in there, technically the whole Middle East belongs to Israel. If you want to get technical, he's saying all the way from Egypt to the Euphrates. That covers Iran, Iraq, it covers all of it. Forget about the little land that's the size of New Jersey. All of it belongs to them. But the focus in here is not about the land right now. The focus is about the fire that went in between the pieces because... And here it says that he is the mediator of the new covenant. In other words, the continuing of this covenant that he started with Abraham, and then we see a Mount Sinai that was rectified by blood, and now we see it in here in the Brihadashah. So, therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Because we understand now that he is the one passing in between the pieces, in between the offerings. He's the one in the middle. He's the one sanctifying. He's the one rectifying the covenant. So it stands true. What is the new covenant? It says that he's the mediator of the new covenant. Because they broke the what? First covenant. True? Okay. So what is the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, Jeremiah was prophesizing of a time to come. Jesus wasn't even in the picture at this point. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice that there's two separate distinctions in here. House of Judah, Yehuda, and house of Ben Israel, Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and, br and bring them out to the land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant that they broke, though I was a husband, declares the Lord. Now, we, we read a little bit about that in Exodus 24 when they say, all that the Lord has said we will do. And what covenant were they making there? Well, they made a covenant of keeping the Torah, the commandments of the Lord. We read that. That's what Mishpatim came from. Okay? So he's saying that not like that one, he says. He said, I'm not making a covenant like I did with them back then. How is it that he did it back then? By the blood of go uh, what? goats and the heifer, right? He didn't say anything about so far, at least thus so far. He hasn't said anything about the law being changed. He just said that the manner how he's going to do this is going to be what? Different. So what's going to be different about it? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, he says. Declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, he says. Bless you. And I will write it on their hearts, he says. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. What happened in Exodus chapter 24? He didn't write it on their hearts. Some tablets. So what is the difference between Mount Sinai and in here? The covenant, the new covenant that he's going to make with both houses. Essentially, what's the difference between the both of them is the spirit in between. Because it is the spirit that he's going to breathe upon them that's going to cause them to walk in his Torah. Now, of course, we know that that came fulfilled literally manifesting in Acts chapter 2. For instance, when it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were able to speak in different languages and whatnot, and they were able to walk now in the promises that God had stored for them. So Jeremiah 31 says that the difference, the only difference is that he's going to do, he's not changing the law. Because he says, I will put my law. So that kind of takes that theology out. You know, we can't say, well, he's doing something new. He says, the way and how I'm going to do it is different. I personally am going to write it up on their hearts. What? The law. So if we are spirit-filled, which I'm assuming we all are, right? And most people claim to be spirit-filled anyways. Then the, one of the first evidence of the gifts of the spirit needs to be yielding and obedience to the law of God. That's the number one thing. If you don't have that, everything else is in vanity, folks. I mean, you can speak 50,000 languages and you can make fire come down from heaven. None of that matters if the very, very evidence of all this, which is the basics, it is the law of God written in your heart. If you don't have that, now I'm going to be very daring here today. I'm going to be the opposite of what a lot of Baptist preachers say. Well, not Baptist preachers, Pentecostal preachers. They say that if you don't, speak in tongues, you don't have the gift of the Spirit in you. Well, I'm here to tell you today that if you don't walk in the law of God, you're not walking in the Spirit. Simply put. Reverse of that. Because the giftings of the Spirit were not for everybody. But the law of God is for everybody, folks. Irregardless. And I will be together God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 22 says this. Therefore, says the Lord to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, he says, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. 
And I will submit to you, we have profaned his name. Today we continue, when I say we, not necessarily here, in general, the body. We're, we're going out there today and saying that we're presenting a God and we're presenting a Messiah that's contrary to what Moses said. That's defiling his name, by the way. So you can say God, 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 God 20,000 times a day, folks, and that doesn't mean you're defiling his name or using it in vain. You know what's in vain and you know what's defiling his name? When you said that his Torah is no longer valid and you walk in that statue. That's how you defile his name. So it says in here, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, he says, which has been profaned among the nations. Why among the nations? Because Israel is scattered among the nations. And what's the problem? What is Israel doing wrong that they're among the nations? They have assimilated among the nations. That's the problem. And because they have assimilated among the nations, they're not standing out. They're not being a beacon. They're not being a light. You know, you were supposed to be different, folks. If you're blending in too much, I'm serious. If you're blending in too much with people, you need to ask yourself, what am I doing wrong? Seriously. If the world is coming in agreement with you for way too much and vice versa, if you come in agreement with the thoughts and the mentality of the world, folks, there is something majorly wrong. You need to be different, simply put. It needs to be inscribed in your blood and in your DNA. And we're worrying too much about the opinions of everybody else. And thus what's happening is we're assimilating because just like the servant. Now here's the tie-in with the servant. The servant did not want to let the wife go and did not want to let the children go and they didn't want to let the commodities go from the master. Where all this is going to lead, folks, and whether you want to like if you like it or not, it's in that time, which I believe is already approaching, is right in your face. You're going to have to make a choice. And if you're not used to being special, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time being set free. You're going to be the one who says, you know what? Go ahead and pierce my ear to the doorpost. I want to serve this master. I don't want to be free. Because you don't know how to be free. You're afraid to be free. Most of us are afraid of getting out of our comfort zone. Is that true? That's true. If we're not within our boundaries that we have control, we really, really quickly lose hope here. And, and we, we can't handle it. We, we, we panic. We need to get out of that comfort zone, folks. It's okay to let go of the wheel. I always say this. Let go of the wheel. Every now and then, let it go. Look. There, the, the, his name is going to be profane among the nations because Israel is not doing its job. It thinks. It speaks. And I'm going to just focus on those two. Not so much about how they dress because we're in exile anyways. But it thinks and it speaks, and it processes everything like the world. That's the problem. In other words, the neshama, which is the soul, the neshama looks like a Gentile. Now, you can look like a Gentile on the outside, sort of. Still need to wear your zitzits. But you don't need to walk around with a tunic all day long. 
But the neshama in you needs to be seen. The soul in you needs to be seen, folks. And unfortunately, Israel is not doing its job. So, it says that you have profaned among the nation and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, <laughs> this is the part that we don't like to hear. When through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How's he going to do it? Through each and one of you. That means that you need to bow down. You need to die to yourself. You need to start worrying about your neighbor. You need to start worrying about looking good for everybody else. And trying to please everybody else. And get acceptance, so to speak, from everybody else. And have some zeal for your God for once. That's something that I want to challenge each and one of us. Let's have some zeal for God for a change. Because we've been having zeal for the world for too long. You know what? That's so cliche at this point. So normal. I dare, I will dare to be different. And that's how we need to wake up every morning. I dare today to think and be different from the world. Let's see if you can live up to that challenge every morning. I will take you from the nations, he says. And that work, I will take you, is a verb, it's laha, and it means literally almost like a snatching you out, so to speak. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, he says. You know, folks, if our hearts is not for the land right now, then I'm afraid to say that you are still thinking like a slave. You are still the Hebrew slave who loves his wife, loves his children, and loves the paycheck that the master has given him. That you're not even thinking about your freedom. Because you're so used to being a slave that it's become the norm for you. You ever met people that they're just so happy being miserable? And for them, that's normal? It's normal. I'm miserable, but I love it. And don't you dare tell me that I'm miserable because I am happy. Now give me my drink. <laughs> right? That's the thing. We have become so used to being slaves that we don't even think about the land. That's why, why do you think I put the blessing every morning, every Shabbat? The first thing is the declaration to return back to the land. Because if that's not your focus, where is your focus? If the focus is not in the land, then your focus is in this land. And if it's in this land, your focus is off. I will, because the focus of the, God, the Father is to bring us to the land. That's his focus, by the way. His focus is to cleanse you and to bring you back to the land. Meaning that the Father meditates on that all day long. Do you? Do you come in agreement with him and meditate all day long and actually being free from yourself? See, I think we all need a little bit of freedom from ourselves. To be able to accomplish the things that the Father wants us to accomplish. I will sprinkle, now here it goes, coming in agreement with Jeremiah 31. I will sprinkle clean water on you, he says. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, he says. Now this is the second uh, witness. 
This is not Jeremiah. This is Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, he says. He's saying that part of this whole process is that he's going to put a different spirit within you. This comes and ties into the writer of Hebrew when he says that he's the mediator of the new covenant, which they broke in Mount Sinai, which connects to the slave. Because in order to be free completely, you need to not love being a slave. You need to look forward to the freedom. It says in here, I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, he says, and cause you. In other words, this spirit, this ruach that he's putting in you, it's going to, instead of causing you to convulse in the floor, it's not going to do that. It's going to cause you to want to walk in his statues and be obedient to him and be careful to obey my rules. Do you know that the apostles received the Holy Spirit before Acts chapter 2? For instance, in the last chapter of the book of John, it says that when he appeared to them, they were locked in the house. It says that the master himself, Yeshua himself, breathed upon them. And it says that they received the Holy Spirit right there. Interesting. In a very, very quiet, mellow environment. There was no bouncing around, no, no you know, show to present. They were actually in the room, quietly receiving his spirit, equipping them to go to the four corners of the world and proclaim the Besorah, the gospel of Abraham. John 5, 46 to 47. And we'll end with this. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me. For he, what? Wrote about me. Wow. That should be a shocker for many of us. That should be a major shocker. But if you do not believe in his writings, how many people don't believe in the writings of Moshe today? Let's be real with one another. Most people don't believe in the writings of Moshe, meaning that it has no authority in their lives. If Moses has no authority in your life, I got news for you, Messiah has no authority in your life. You cannot have Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, without Moses. Simply put, I'm not making it up. It's right there. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, he says? How can you believe the message that I'm giving to you if you're rejecting Moses? That's why there's so many people who cannot accept the Jewish Yeshua. Think about it. They cannot accept the Jewish Yeshua because they're rejecting Moshe, Moses. They can only believe in the Roman Jesus, but not the Jewish Yeshua. I hate to put it that way, folks. I don't mean to be divisive, but guess what? There is a dividing factor. The dividing factor is the difference between a true Messiah and a false Messiah. I'm not going to waver on that one. That is the reality. The true Messiah is the one who comes according to Moses. The rectifying of the covenant in Exodus chapter 24, that they broke, he came in the flesh to be able to redeem his people so that that covenant can still stand. 
Not to do away with it, but they can make it stand. So that the slave, now let's take this back to the parasha this morning. The slave at the end of the age, the sixth day of the six years, can be free. And accept the freedom of the Messiah which is found in Moses. Amen. Yeah.